You know, when I was 15 years old, I remember it as if it was right now. The excitement, the joy, and it was, it was awesome. It was a brand new CCM Targa bicycle. Now, n- not a lot of you are going, woohoo, yeah, that was so exciting. But for me, it was something brand new that I had not expected. As a matter of fact, they said, just go downstairs, your presence down there. And I walked two or three steps down, down towards the basement. I saw it and I jumped the rest of the way. Luckily, I didn't break my legs or my bean as I uh, landed on that hard floor. But I was excited because I had been riding around. Do you remember them? On one of those old two-wheel banana seat bikes. Oh, it was awful. Awful. You know, just couldn't do much with that. As a matter of fact, I almost killed myself on one of those banana seat bikes trying to do a trick. And uh, yeah, it wasn't good. But this bike, it was one of those new-fangled 10-speeds. We'd gone from three speeds all the way up to ten, and now I was part of the cool kids on the block, so I thought. So I thought. Uh, We love new things. Can you remember something new that you received that just thrilled your heart, that you uh, you, you just didn't expect it? It came out of the blue? Well, that was mine. You know, turn in your Bibles to Mark chapter 2 for a second, because there we're going to come to a a really powerful section, powerful section that tells us about Jesus, that he has brought something new for us, Uh, that Jesus has brought something new that would lead to freedom, liberty in our spiritual lives. And this liberty that he talks about is the something new and something better than what was. Let's read Mark chapter 2. Verses 18 and following. Now John's disciples, verse 18, and the Pharisees were fasting. And people came and said to him, Why do John's disciples and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests fast while, they, while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and they will fast in that day. No one sews a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from from it, and the new from the old, and a worse tear is made. And no one puts new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst, and the skins... Uh, The wines will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But the new wine is for fresh wineskins. Well, Father, we pray that you would just teach us something very important for our everyday lives. The freedom that we have in Jesus, in the new thing that he brought. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Jesus, as you know, if you've been with us through this series, uh, the Gospel of Mark, he's in the uh, region of Galilee near Capernaum, which seems to be his hometown, uh, his base of operations. And he's been teaching and and doing some things that are pretty miraculous. Uh, The the last few chapters have been marked by uh, healings and uh, and very um, unusual to the people around him, 
callings of others to follow him. We see a demon-possessed man that is freed from that. Uh, we see a man who we don't know how long he was paralyzed and couldn't walk, but he's, um, his sins are forgiven, and he's made capable of walking again. Amazing healing. And uh, we see Jen, uh, Jesus then uh, hanging out with sinners and tax collectors. Oh, my. But Jesus is on the move. But today, as um, we read this scripture, I think it's really helpful, very important for us uh, to be mindful of a couple things. First of all, let's be mindful when reading scripture, we need to understand the particular con uh, context. That is, the historical context that they're in right there and then to the readers that are listening, uh, and the social context. Uh, there is a way that they lived their lives in that moment, in that time. And so we see this line that says, Now Jesus, or now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting. Uh, and we want to know, what's that all about? First of all, it's John. We know it's John the Baptist. There's a couple Johns in Scripture. There's John the Baptist. And there's John, the apostle, who wrote uh, the Gospel of John and the Epistles of John. We, we know there are two Johns. So let's be sure we understand they're talking about John's disciples. That is, John the Baptist's disciples. Uh, he's the one that announced uh, Jesus, the Lamb of God, coming to save the world. Then there's the other group, the Pharisees. Uh, we've heard about them and, and uh, talked about them the last couple of weeks. Uh, an influential religious sect within Judaism in the time of Christ and even into the early church. And for John and his disciples and uh, the Pharisees fasting was a way uh, to really demonstrate their, the piousness, the religiosity of their lives. Now, when you look at the Pharisees and what's written about them, you see that the Pharisees most often presented a hypocritical front. So much so uh, that Jesus says in Matthew 23, um, they do not practice what they preach. And oh, how you and I don't want to be like that. We want to practice what we preach. He went, Jesus went even a little further. He said they were whitewashed sepulchers. What does that mean? They walked around and they wore these beautifully white robes, but he said they're like, they're like graves. They've got this beautiful look on the outside, but they're dead, spiritually dead inside. And so the Pharisees had this uh, sort of uh, um, emphasis on holding a perceived uh, persona of holiness. As a matter of fact, their name, Pharisee, in Hebrew, means separated. And they, they uh, took on uh, oral traditions uh, in addition to the Bible. So, is that a Pharisee calling us right now? They're a little upset when I talk like this about them. But both groups held to an old covenant focus towards the letter of the law. They lived under the law. Remember, uh, the law was important to, them, put, important to them. But then along comes uh, these critics, these people, he says, that say, how come they're not fasting? Your people are not fasting like these groups. 
It really seemed to grind them, didn't it? To bring up this question, which seems like, is that really that important? You got the Messiah. You've got the, the creator of the universe before you, and you want to talk about fasting? So Jesus gave an answer. And he does it in his typical way. Isn't it, if you really study Jesus and what he said, it's fascinating how he often answered a question with a question. Or, like here, he answered the question with really down-to-earth, everyone could understand illustrations. And he gives us three illustrations here that are tremendous. They help, they should have helped, they help us to understand the, the real answer to this question about fasting. These are five wonderful verses, and I'm going to spend the next two hours unpacking them. Oh, you're with me, good, yeah, you're with me. So first and foremost, when you're reading the scriptures, uh, take into account, understand the particular historical social context. But also, when you're reading scripture, we need to understand the theological context. And that's important in this little five, verse, um, uh, five verses that we're looking at today. How does this work this question and this this question about fasting in light of theological understanding that these religious leaders and everyone around should have so we need to understand this and it's important so uh, we listen to Jesus answer and if you're a Jewish person right there you might quickly turn your mind to the old covenant that they're working under. Covenant, by the way, is not a term we often use today, is it? Your wife says to you, uh, would you go to the store today and pick up some milk and bread and eggs and stuff like that? We don't answer her going, my dear, I covenant with you to go and get the milk, the bread. No, we don't do that. But it is an important term. It's an important term that really means uh, and that really is a, an important key theme of the Bible. You need to understand that the key to God's redemptive plan is wound up in the covenants that he has made. It literally means uh, an agreement. It's a term of uh, an agreement. A covenant, a covenant is a relationship between two partners it's, uh, who make binding promises to each other and work together to reach a common goal. If they faithfully, faithfully fulfill their part of the agreement, he will faithfully fulfill his part of the agreement. And these covenants are often uh, seen uh, with signs and oaths and ceremonies. The covenants always had defined commitments and obligations. Uh, they're different from a legal contract in that the emphasis is, is totally on relationship. And of all the covenants that would be critical for us to have a, an initial handle on and that the Jewish nation would have understood is the covenant of law. The covenant of law. It was entered into by God with the nation of Israel. And to get there, we have to turn to Exodus 19. You got your Bibles? I see some of you turning. Exodus 19. Um, in Exodus 19, verses 4 to 6, we read, For yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. By the way, do you know where we are in Exodus 19? 
we're just after Israel has been freed by God uh, from the bondage in Egypt. They've traveled a bit now, and they're, they're at the base of Sinai. And God is about to do something very special. You see, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians. You can't forget it. It just happened. And how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. So Moses, he's down with the people, and God is speaking and using Moses to lead. And they hear this message from God through Moses. And the people of God say this in verse 8. All that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Do you hear how confident they are? All that the Lord, we're going to do it, God. We're with you. We're on board. And so Moses heads back up the mountain, and he convenes with God. And what happens then? You know, big deal, right? Moses receives the Ten Commandments. And he comes down the mountain, and all, all of you right now are picturing Charlton Heston, aren't you? Big beard and all that. And he brings God's commandments, ten specific commandments. And those commandments became the fabric of the life of a Jewish man, a Jewish woman, Jewish family. As a matter of fact, in the next uh, few chapters, he gives even more details about the laws and how they should be acted out, how they should be obeyed, specific commandments about feasts and dates to keep and rituals to follow. And, and, and we see that the people uh, were informed what they were to do, uh, especially when they sinned against God's specific commandments. There was offerings to be made. Uh, they were to prepare those offerings in a very specific way. And all these commandments and these offerings and these reparations for breaking God's commandments, uh, they were all to reflect the holiness of God. And as we know so clearly, it's so important to note that the terms of the relationship that the old covenant offered with God uh, were all based to the greater extent on an external conformity. Live like this. Do this, do this, don't do this, don't do that. There was an internal side to it, a heart side, but it was primarily an external conformity to the revealed laws of God. And we know, we know exactly what happened, don't we? Israel failed terribly. Over and over and over again. Israel, who said, okay, we're going to do all that you've commanded us to do, failed again and again. And God's wrath and justice finally caught up to them where uh, they had come from bondage. Years later, because of their sin, they were thrown back into bondage for another 70 years. And you can read about a lot of that in the book of Daniel. But the good news, the great news for both Israel and for us 
is that God knew all along that this would happen, that we would say, yes, we're going to obey, and then we would fail. We would sin. And so in God's sovereign plan, at the right time, the Messiah came. Jesus, the Savior, came. And guess what? He brought, he came and he established a new covenant. The old covenant would be done and a new covenant would be made with his people. Israel and the world, all of us would be allowed to be under that new covenant. And so 700 years before Jesus came on the scene, uh, the prophet Jeremiah talked about this new covenant that would happen. The one that, if you know Christ, like these two ladies, are living under the new covenant right now. Turn your Bibles now to Jeremiah chapter 31. Jeremiah chapter 31, verses 31 to 34. It says, Behold, the days are coming. Jeremiah is prophesying. He's, he's been given a message from God to tell the people of Israel. The days are coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel, the house of Judah, not like the covenant that I made with their fathers on the day when I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, my covenant that they broke, though I was their husband, declares the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel. We're in Jeremiah 31, verse 33. For, for this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. After those days, he declares the Lord, I will put my law within them. Notice this. This is important. I will put my law within them. I will write it on their hearts. Do you notice what's changing? It's no longer an external covenant. It's going to be a covenant that is written on their hearts. And I will be their God and they shall be my people. And no longer shall each one teach his neighbor and each his brother saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest, declares the Lord. And here's, oh, the new covenant. Just listen to this. It, it thrills my heart. For I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. I will forgive their iniquity and remember their sin no more. So now the th something new and something better is being talked about. They would no longer be the people of Israel based on uh, an outward rituals of law and works, but rather on the base of, basis of an inward relationship of love and grace that God would bestow upon them. The new covenant. And when Jesus was listening to this question, I am positive out of the answers that he gave, the illustration, he's going, don't you know I am here to bring you something new and something better. Let's think about the New Testament, the writer of Hebrews. We don't know who wrote Hebrews for sure. We think it might have been Paul. It has a lot of Pauline kind of markers, but we don't know for sure. But the writer of Hebrews in Hebrews 9, Hebrews 9, 9 to 15, Hebrews 9, 9 to 15, says this. Uh, sort of coming in at that point, which is symbolic for the present age. According to this arrangement, gifts and sacrifices are offered that cannot perfect the conscience 
of the worshipers, but deal only with food and drink and various washings, regulations for the body imposed until the time of reformation. What's that reformation? The new covenant. Then in verse 11, we're talking from Hebrews 9, verse 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made by hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood and goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. Stop there, keep your finger on verse 13. You know that the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, was all about bringing bulls and goats and making offerings to have God forgive your sin, and you'd go up to the temple, and the priest uh, would take those uh, offerings and burn them on the offering uh, altar, and your sins would be uh, as forgiven. Now let's go back to verse 13. But that was temporary. Let me just make note of that. That's temporary because thus securing an eternal redemption is where we left off. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. Here it is. Listen to this. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from, uh, conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Therefore he, Jesus, is the mediator of a, what is it? Read it out loud. New covenant. He's the mediator. Jesus is the mediator of a new covenant so that those who are called may receive the promised eternal inheritance since a death has occurred that redeems them from transgressions committed under the first covenant. Listen, let me just sum it up very, very quickly. Jesus became our high priest. He entered the holy holies by his own right to be there. He offered himself as the perfect, spotless lamb of God to be a sacrifice and take our place. And that when we put our faith and trust in him as that sacrifice, we are redeemed and eternally redeemed. We are put into the grip of grace that no one can take us out of God's hands. We become saved. We become right with God. There is no large gap anymore keeping us from a holy and righteous relationship with God because now we're covered by the blood of Christ and the Father sees us as righteous in Christ and because of his blood. Wow. it's a lot of stuff, isn't it? But it's really important. And, you know, Jesus is talking to these people who are coming with this talk about fasting and he wants to help them and understand. So how does he help them to understand? He talks about the old covenant and the new and better thing that he's brought. Uh, I found a quote. I'm not sure who this is. It's talking about this passage in Mark. It says, What is being taught to us in it is that the new covenant realities of grace in Jesus cannot be made to fit into the old covenant patterns of the law. It's not even appropriate to try to make them do so. So Jesus answered and said, we leave the old, settle into the new. 
And so my third point this morning is, uh, when we read the scriptures, we see that Jesus' illustrations lead us to our most powerful personal applications. And Jesus says, uh, after he hears the disciples of John and the Pharisees were fasting question, he moves into three pertinent illustrations. I don't want to go into a, a message about fasting this morning. Let me just say this what about fasting. It means to abstain from food in a ritualistic manner in order to communicate an attitude of pious humility and sorrow before God. That's what a fast should be all about. We're saying to God, we're removing ourselves from maybe food or some activity in order that we focus on you and we hear from you. We listen to what you, you want to tell us. And so uh, John's disciples, the Pharisees, were very much into fasting because that, the outward look like, made everybody look at them and said, oh, they must be spiritual people. As a matter of fact, when you read the Old Testament, uh, you'll find only one fast that has been called upon by uh, the Jewish nation to hold faithfully, and that's a fast on the Day of Atonement. That's where once a year, the high priest would go into the temple, and he would go behind that very curtain, a holy holies, well prepared as God had detailed, and he would offer a bull uh, as an offering for his sins. Once he had done that, he would have two goats brought to him, and they would determine that one of the goats would be used uh, as uh, the offering, and the other goat would be put off into uh, the desert. It would be the scapegoat. You can read all about that in Leviticus 16. Very important. But no other fasts were put upon uh, by uh, God to the people of Israel. That one was absolutely crucial. But now, after hundreds and hundreds of years, all kinds of stuff had been added. As a matter of fact, you remember when I talked about uh, the Pharisee praying in Luke 18? He's, uh, here we have uh, the Pharisee saying, God, I thank you. I am not like other men. Here's the list of other men. Extortioners, okay, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. Pharisees were very high on themselves thinking that their outward sign of piety was really what a spiritual life was all alike. And Jesus is saying, no, stop right there. He answers with these three illustrations. The first illustration is about uh, a, a groom and his groomsman at a wedding. Verse 19. Look at Mark 2. Let's get back to Mark 2 and look at verse 19. We see that it says, can the wedding guests fast while the bridegroom is with them? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast that day. Weddings are great times of joy. I still remember my wedding well, and I uh, had some groomsmen with me, and uh, we certainly didn't go out and sit around and mope, you know, Oh, this is such a great day. You know, I'm getting married. And they're moping there. Yeah, you're getting married. We wish we could have got Kathy, but you got Kathy. No. My groomsmen were excited. We had a party the night before. Can you believe it? We went to Pizza Hut. Oh, man. We shut that place down well. 
I was a Bible school student. I had no money. <laughs> Neither did they because they're all in Bible school with me. But we rejoiced. We celebrated. Uh, and they celebrated with me and celebrated me and where I was at in my life. To have done otherwise would have been rude and utterly inappropriate. In this parable, Jesus is saying, I am the bridegroom. Why would people mope and and groan? Because I'm here with them. Let's celebrate my presence right here. It says, as long as they have the bridegroom with them, they cannot fast. Now we know not too long after this, Jesus went to the cross and he died. And there was mourning and there was heartache. I wonder if this is what John is talking about. Uh, Jesus talking in John says, Truly, truly, I say to you, John 16, 20, You will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. Yes, for a moment, there was sorrow, but quickly turned to joy. And we're in that state of joy now. Jesus is with every believer. He dwells within him and, and her. The Spirit of Christ is there. And we can rejoice because he's with us. Jesus is simply telling us in this uh, story that the old covenant rules of fasting and sadness and mourning no longer apply. We're in the new covenant. We're in a new reality. Is, and it is fitting to have joy. Now, I just want to quickly say, most of our lives every day is typically there's, there's joy. It's, it's seen as a joyful life, but there are times. And we've talked about times when they're difficult and life gets hard. But day to day, we can have the joy of the Lord because Jesus, the bridegroom, is in our hearts and in our lives if you know him personally. So that's one. We talk about the bridegroom. He talks about the wedding feast. Secondly, he talks about a new patch of cloth on an old garment. Verse 21, no one sees an unshrunk cloth on an old garment, or sews uh, on an old garment. If he does, the patch tears away from it, and the new from the old, and, the, and a worse tear is made. I've never seen ever, actually, a patch sewn on, so I don't know this firsthand, but it makes sense. You have a pair of jeans, and uh, you put a brand new piece of cloth on that, and you, you sew it on to the knee, and then you throw that jean in the dryer, that thing, that patch uh, shrinks and tears away. So, again, he's using everyday illustrations to teach us, uh, and you, you, he's basically and clearly saying, you can't take the new spiritual realities that I've brought you of the new covenant and try to patch the old covenant up with them. And that's what a lot of people still continued to do after he ascended to heaven and the apostles, disciples were doing their missionary journeys, teaching and seeing people come to Christ. A lot of the Jewish believers, the new Jewish believers, were trying to mix the old and the new. And he says, don't do that. You have a brand new something, a brand new something that's better. Live in the new covenant, not in the old covenant. The grace of Jesus Christ in our lives is not a patch job. It's something new and something powerful. Then he says, 
think about this. New wine in old wineskins. No one, verse 22, puts uh, new wine into old wineskins. If he does, the wine will burst the skins, and the wine is destroyed, and so are the skins. But now wine is for fresh wineskins. Now, today we don't maybe understand that as quickly because we put our liquids in a glass bottle, typically, or in a tin. But in that day, uh, they put it into the bladders of goats. Isn't that pleasant to think about? And they'd use new, uh, a new goat bladder and put new wine in. Because what happens? When you put the wine in, it, it still ferments. And, and that fermentation expands. And all of a sudden, boom. Uh, new wine everywhere. Leaking everywhere. And so he says, you wouldn't do that. He's going, just think about it. You know better. You would never do that. So why are you trying to, uh, with this question about fasting, put an old covenant teaching into a new covenant understanding. I'm bringing you something better, something more important, something more wonderful and glorious. And he's saying the vital realities of the new covenant relationship uh, that we have with God are so much better. You remember when uh, Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians said this, Galatians 4 Verses 9 to 11. But now, but now that you have come to know God, or rather to be known by God, how can you turn back again to the weak and worthless elementary principles of the world whose slaves you want to be once more? You observe days and months, seasons and years. Doesn't that sound a lot like an old covenant mindset? Days, seasons, months and years. I'm afraid I may have labored over you in vain. Paul's going, listen, I taught you all about the new covenant, about faith in Christ and the new, better life. Why would you go back to the old life? And just a bit later in Galatians 5, 1, for freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. One of the most notable things about new life in Christ is the freedom that we get to enjoy in Christ. So Jesus' instructions here to those who were asking this question would have hopefully helped them to understand the liberty that will be found in putting your faith and trust in Christ. Okay, how do we apply this for our lives today? What do we do now? I think the first application that's important to us today is recognize Jesus for who he is, the one who brought the better and uh, the, the new and better covenant. He brought us something that we can live a free and powerful life together. And remember also to recognize who we are. Uh, if we're in Jesus, we are free. Uh, we rejoice in our liberty. We don't have ceremonial rules and regulations like the Old Testament had. We have freedom in Christ. And aren't you glad that we don't live in Jesus like uh, slaves, that we are bondage? The only way we're in bondage is I want to be a slave to Jesus and follow him my whole life. But it's not about rules and regulations and fasting and doing religious stuff, you know, 
going, uh, even, even praying a certain amount of days, uh, times a day, uh, and if you don't, you're not going to get to heaven? No, prayer is a joy, and we pray, as Paul said, unceasingly, all the time now. It's a communication. So let's remember who Jesus is. Let's, let's apply a new covenant mindset in light of who Jesus is. Secondly, let's be careful, be mindful about those who seek to bring us uh, into the bondage of religious rights, religious regulations that are not specifically clear or clearly laid out in the scriptures. You know, there are those out there, maybe you've heard them, maybe they have spoken, maybe you were once one of those who would say something like this, why aren't you doing things like we do? You know, and you have a pious face on, but inside your chest is puffed up because you're thinking, we're the right ones. Why aren't you observing these pra- this practice or that practice like we observe it? And in their hearts they might be saying, you're not right with God, really, because you don't follow the rules. And we've got the rules. You know, I say that facetiously, But there are many, many Christians out there in church families that have been unfortunately taught that this is what a new covenant relationship with God is all about. Salvation, yes, but salvation plus. And the joy of our lives in Christ, it is salvation in Christ alone, nothing else. Living a life from the inside out. When you trust Christ, your heart is made new. Jeremiah talked about it. And in Christ, we have new hearts, new lives, and freedom. Third thing I want to just mention is if you ever run across someone who is stuck in this old covenant mindset, yes, maybe Jesus is a part of their life, but they're still adding to what he has brought us and new and better, just pray for them. We don't need to argue and fight with them. We need to pray for them that they might recognize the joy and the freedom they have in Christ alone. Charles Spurgeon was a wonderful pastor uh, back in the 1800s, and he, he preached thousands of sermons and has so many great quotes. I wanted to bring you one for him, from him today. And he says this, The old covenant says, Keep the law and live. The new covenant is, You shall live, and I will lead you to keep my law, for I will write it on your hearts. You get that? The new covenant is, you shall live. Eternal life is yours in Christ. But I'll help you. I'll help you keep my law because I'm going to write it on your heart. Isn't that tremendous? When you come to Christ, the new covenant is written on your heart. Well, that Targa bicycle was something else. Maybe you remember something like that. I'll never forget it. I was just so thankful. My parents, just they knew what my heart was wanting, my desires were, and they met it. But I can tell you, when I became 16, I met Jesus. I trusted in him. I accepted him as my savior. I confessed my sin and trusted him totally. And I got to enjoy the beginning of a new relationship within the new covenant Something that was new and better for me. And today I still rejoice in that. Are you? Do you know him? Do you love him? 
And are you living out that new covenant relationship? Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for Jesus and this answer that he gave to the people that were around him about fasting. And that, you know, we no longer live under the old covenant. We live under this new covenant of freedom, of joy in Christ alone. So I pray that every soul in this room today will have experienced that new relationship in Jesus. They've trusted Christ. They've confessed their sin and trusted him. And I pray that if there's one person that's listening online or in this room that has not, that they would come to me and we can talk it through and we can see them make those decisions for Jesus. Thank you for your word. Thank you for what it teaches us. Bless us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.